As you're seated, would you turn to Daniel chapter 10? That will be the first part of our scripture reading tonight before we get to Revelation chapter 1. Daniel chapter 10 provides uh, a significant background to our uh, text tonight. So I would like to read that and then read our text in Revelation 1. Daniel chapter 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word, and he had understanding of the vision. In those days I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. Of the 24th, on the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face was like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell, in, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you. And stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and be of good courage. As he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Did you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. 
There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. And then with that, turn over to Revelation chapter 1. I'll start reading in verse 9, where we picked up last week and into where we'll focus today in chapter, uh, in verse 12. Revelation 1, 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, I was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lamp stands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters." In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." We'll end there and let us pray, asking God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you that we can lay aside all other of our worldly endeavors to come here to worship you and to hear of you. Be present with us, Lord. Might you open our eyes to see your glory. We know that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the glory of the gospel of Christ. And as we come this evening to see this beautiful, glorious vision of the Son of Man, might you open our eyes, and only you, by your Spirit, can help us see the glory here. So come and meet us in Jesus' name. Amen. 
remember many years ago now I was listening to J. Vernon McGee teach through the book of Revelation. And maybe you've listened to J. Vernon McGee's radio program. And although I, I would disagree with much of his interpretation of Revelation, I remember one thing that he said throughout, and particularly as he came to these sections of, of Christ uh, revealed in glory. And, and it's you know, in that unique accent that he had that I won't try to uh, replicate here. Is he would say, this, this ain't gentle Jesus here. This, this, this ain't Jesus meek and mild. This is Jesus in all his glory and power. And, and he was uh, confronting a, a culture that, that saw uh, Jesus as sort of weak and lowly. And I thought what was true in his day is still true in, in our day. That liberal Protestantism has sold the culture on this concept of Jesus, the meek and lowly. That Jesus is this uh, sort of gentle, uncle-like type figure, like an old monk or something. That Jesus wouldn't kill a fly, and, and, and he's sort of like a hippie. He's all about peace and love. He would never raise his voice. He would never judge anybody. He would just be so affirming. And that's sort of the feel you get. Uh, sometimes when you talk to people about Jesus. But we should not get our view of Jesus from the culture. We should get our view of Jesus from the Scriptures. And when we come to the Scriptures, that's not the picture that we see. Jesus was meek and mild in the sense that He, being very God, took on our flesh and was subject to our weaknesses, and dwelt among sinners, and even allowed himself to be killed by these sinners. He was kind and compassionate. He was and is eager to forgive sin. But Jesus would never diminish or excuse sin. He would never affirm anything contrary to God's word. And he had no problem judging people's sin. He had no problem calling out people's sin. And if necessary, he would flip tables to confront people's sin. And so we must have a holistic picture of who Jesus is. And as we come to this final section in chapter 1, we get this glorious vision of the resurrected Christ. And it is a glorious vision. It is a beautiful vision. And this is not Jesus meek and lowly. This is Jesus resurrected, standing, reigning, and ruling over His earth and in His churches. And so our goal is very simple tonight. We're going to behold the glorified Christ. And, and in this vision, we really come to the end of human language's capacity to explain the glory of God. That, that words actually fall short here. That we, we try as we might, no matter how many uh, you know, qualifiers we put on our, our language, we can't actually fully describe this, but John does it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here. And what we'll see is this cluster of images of, of who Jesus is, description of this Son of Man figure. 
And we could take time to uh, trace each of these uh, descriptions very in a very detailed manner, and that would be fruitful, but I, I don't think we want to take 10 years to preach through the book of Revelation. And I actually think, more importantly, that John puts all these together because together these are to have a powerful effect. That, that he has this cluster of images because he wants to show us and overwhelm us with the glory of Christ. And so that is our goal tonight. We noted last week that John hears the, a voice and he describes what he hears. And tonight we'll see that he turns to see the voice and he then describes what he sees. And this vision is one and the same. So let's behold the glorified Christ first tonight in his overwhelmingly glorious presence. In his overwhelmingly glorious presence. John turns to see this voice, and he, and he turns... And he sees seven golden lampstands. We'll, we'll come back to that a little bit later. But in verse 13, In the midst of this, these lampstands, one like a son of man. And then he goes on and on. So we'll just take some time to work through these descriptions. As you know from the Old Testament, we've discussed this son of man uh, language uh, in the Old Testament, uh, Son of Man could merely be a way to refer to someone being human uh, as a Son of Man. Ezekiel, in, in the book of Ezekiel, he's often referred to as Son of Man. But we also know from Daniel chapter 7 that Son of Man is a messianic term. That as we saw a few weeks ago when we looked at that text, in, in Daniel chapter 7, this Son of Man figure comes to the Ancient of Days, comes to God, and receives an eternal kingdom uh, of which there's no end, and he puts down all other rebellion against God. And so I think clearly, uh, as we see Jesus glorified here, this, this is a reference to Jesus as the glorified Son of Man. And we saw this in earlier in chapter 1, and we don't need to re- go over that, that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. He is, this, he is the ruler of the kings on earth. He is that, that descendant of David who is coming to reign forever. He is the Son of Man. And this Son of Man is clothed in a long robe. Some commentators will think this is a reference to a priestly robe. That's legitimate, but I think this is a reference uh, to a royal robe. Because in Isaiah 6, you remember that in Isaiah's vision of God on his throne, he said, I saw the Lord sitting on a th- upon a throne, high and lifted up, And the train of his robe filled the temple. And so here is this image of God on his throne and his, and his, the train, uh, the hem of his robe is, is long, uh, signifying his royalty. So Jesus is this royal Davidic heir who is ruling uh, the world. And we're told next that he has a golden sash around his Chess. Now this, this image comes from Daniel chapter 10. You'll hopefully, maybe as I read very quickly, you got some of these references, but uh, you'll see it more. 
And, and in many ways, this Daniel 10 is, is likely an angelic figure that, that Daniel sees. Uh, but John borrows significantly from the description of this angelic figure uh, in his vision of the Son of Man. And I think it's, it's really to use Old Testament language to describe an appearance of a heavenly being. That in one sense, they're all glorious and they're all arrayed in white. And, and uh, he's using other uh, imagery and passages here, but he is using uh, Daniel chapter 10 significantly. And, and, and this, this fits with what we said that, that John is a prophet and he's aligning himself with the persona of an Old Testament prophet. So in Daniel 10, we see the prophet get a vision of the glorious, uh, of a glorious being and, and is emotionally, physically overcome and needs to be strengthened and, and, and fulfill the vision to see it and to write it. And that's what Daniel experienced and that's what John is experiencing in this vision. So he's wearing a, a golden sash around his chest. This is a kingly, uh, royal figure. And then in verse 14, the hairs of his head were white. For this, let's go back again to Daniel chapter 7 this time. We saw Daniel 7 as a reference to the Son of Man figure, and that's Daniel seven, thirteen, and verse 14. But if you go before that, we get a description of the Ancient of Days. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. I'll read it here. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. So the Ancient of Days is described in white clothing as snow, and we're told that his hair was as white as pure wool or white wool. And John tells us here that Jesus is, this Son of Man, the hair of his head was white. And so if you, if you go through the Old Testament, only God's hair this Ancient of Day is described as having white hair like pure wool. So John, did you make a mistake here? Did you, did you know you're, you're giving descriptions of Jesus that were only a, a reference to God in the Old Testament? And John says, exactly, that's what I'm doing. And so, once again, we have a reference uh, to our triune God here in the Father and the Son, that John is saying uh, that Ancient of Days is, is also Jesus. But He's also the Father. That, that, that God is, is, is Trinity. That Jesus is fully divine. And, and we'll see this over and over again, and even, even more so in, in tonight's text, that John uh, has no doubt that Jesus is divine. And so uh, here and, and later on, this is an application. If you, if you meet a cult, if you meet a Jehovah's Witness uh, that comes to your door 
And, and they can take the few very explicit references to, to, John's, to Jesus' deity and, and change it however they want to uh, retranslate that. But if you look at their Bibles, they'll, the Ancient of Day has pure wool uh, hair and Jesus, the Son of Man, has pure wool hair. Can you explain that to me? This is a reference to Jesus' deity. Continuing on in verse 14, his eyes were like a flame of fire. This idea of fire is this, Jesus' eyes are, are penetrating. That fire refines, it, it gets all the dross away, it gets all the impurities away, and it gets to the substance of the matter. Jesus can see through all facades. And we'll see as, as we get into the letters to the churches in chapters 2 and 3 that Jesus sees very clearly the condition of all of his churches. That he's not fooled by any of their actions. And, and, and his penetrating eyes can see through that. That, that this uh, fire speaks of refinement. Also is a, a reference to Jesus' holiness, his, his appearance. His eyes like a flame of fire. Jesus' feet, in verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. Bronze is sort of a guess here of what this metal is, but it's a, it's a strong, heavy metal. That's what's on Jesus' feet. This is a description of, of, of a stately, of a soldier, really, ready for, for battle. That, that Jesus is arrayed in this uh, kind of footwear. Jesus isn't wearing sandals. Jesus is wearing uh, shoes like burnished bronze. Moving on, his voice was like the, the roar of, of many waters. Maybe you've been to Niagara Falls the, or, or any sort of waterfall. It's it's. It's loud. It's, it's pouring down. You, you can't, if you're close, you can't hear much anything else. If you've been to Niagara Falls and you can go in the cave uh, under the falls, and when you're there, you're not having a conversation. You're, you're just focused on that water because the loudness gains your attention. So, so you can't ignore Jesus' voice when he's speaking. John didn't mistake that I, I can't hear you. That his, his voice is like many waters. He described the voice earlier as the sound of many trumpets, which is also a loud uh, voice. That, that in Daniel 10, the voice is described as a, a multitude. And so the point is that, that Jesus' voice is loud and clear. And we can all hear it. In his hand, he, he held the seven stars. We'll, we'll come back to what those are. His mouth, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Jesus' Jesus's mouth is described as a double-edged sword. This is a, this is a death-bringing instrument, a sword. It's sharp. It's used to, to bring death. It's used to pierce and divide The word of God is compared to a double-edged sword. It, it pierces our hearts. It, 
It discerns matters. It cuts straight. It judges our hearts and our attitudes. And so too Jesus' mouth. We're told in Revelation 19, verse 15, when this uh, Son of Man returns again, this rider on the white horse, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, and with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Jesus comes back, and with his mouth he judges the world. That his army doesn't fight for him because out of his mouth this sharp two-edged sword comes and judges and pierces and kills. So John describes this Christ as this sharp two-edged sword coming from his mouth. His face was shining like the sun in full strength. That you know, we can't look at the sun directly or without the instruments or protection. That you look at the sun, it's so bright, it's so powerful, it would would hurt your eyes to look at it too long. And John describes the face of Jesus like the sun shining in full strength, this amazing radiance that comes from this Son of Man figure. And this is so much that what's John's reaction? He sees this glorious appearance of this Son of Man... And he doesn't just say, well, that's nice. He, he, he falls down as dead, we're told. Now remember, John walked with Jesus. He had seen Jesus before. He had seen Jesus at his transfiguration before. But yet in his unglorified body here, as he gets this revelation on the island of Patmos, it's too much, and he falls down as dead. And this is similar to the Old Testament prophets. When they get a vision of the glory of God, it is overwhelming. Isaiah, in in chapter 6, he clearly perceives his sin and his guilt. Ezekiel, as well, is overwhelmed and falls down when he gets that glorious vision there in Ezekiel chapter 1. We we read tonight in Daniel 10 that Daniel, uh, he's sick He's weak. He's lost all energy from from trying to interpret these visions and seeing this glorious uh, being in front of him. And so, like them, John falls as dead. And so we we today we don't get these appearances. We don't get these visions of 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 Jesus directly, but we get them. Uh, described for us in the Bible. And so, as we see the glory of God displayed in the Scripture, as as we read this text tonight, as we, we see and contemplate the glory of Christ, does that glory overwhelm you at times? Are you, uh, are you at times raptured in the glorious appearance of our God? That nothing is like him in all the world. And we'll, and we'll see another vision in chapters 4 and 5. And I think those are probably my most favorite chapters in the book. Because it's such a stunning depiction of God uh, on his throne. Ring and all of the glorious imagery around that. 
that you may know in the Old Testament, the, the word for glory is, is synonymous. To, uh, it, it can be used, something is heavy. This, there, there is a, a weightiness to a glorious object. So there is a weightiness to God and his glory. There is something about seeing God in, in, his, in this depiction, and it should sober us. It should overwhelm us. And I think it's important that we still feel that at times. Because I feel like uh, our culture is so flippant. Life's a big sitcom. And so we're just, we're just ready for the next you know, slapstick humor. And there's nothing wrong with humor. But there is something wrong of that, that sort of sitcom humor that shrinks our soul's capacity to perceive the weightiness of God's glory. So, so we must guard against that. We must be able to be sober and to be overwhelmed when we see visions of our glorious God. So behold the glorified Christ in his overwhelmingly glorious presence. Secondly, behold the glorified Christ in his death-defeating authority. John's lost all strength. He's on the ground as dead But Jesus extends his hand and touches him. And he says, and he says to him, Don't, don't, don't be afraid, John. Listen to me. I'm the first and the last. That is overwhelming and and maybe even as terror bringing as Jesus' appearance is, it should never be the cause of fear for the believer. So Jesus tells John, I'm not here to judge you. You are my own. This, this isn't a, a revelation to bring condemnation. You have been commissioned to write this vision of, of, of this revelation given to me and sending it to the churches. So, so don't fear. Get up. It's, it's time to write all that you see. And then Jesus will, will go on again in a series of reminders of who he is and why John, and, and by implication, why we should not be afraid. And, and we have to stop here again and remind us of, of uh, this is a reminder of the need to not neglect this book. Because where else in the Bible do we get such rapid-fire succession of, of imagery of the glory of God like we're going to see and like we've already seen? So uh, we, we will be overwhelmed at times, uh, but that's its point. Jesus said, John, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. This is uh, what we've recalled a merism before when you state something in the beginning and the end and it emphasizes everything in between. Jesus or God had said before in, in verse 8, I am the Alpha and Omega. But this first and last has Old Testament uh, warrant, particularly from the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 41 God discussing the rise of Cyrus, he says, Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning 
I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. Isaiah 44, verse 6, he says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And then turn over with me, or if you are following or just listen, 48, verse 12, Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first and I am the last. Once again, John, do you know that this reference to the first and the last in the Old Testament was a reference to Yahweh? And Jesus is now saying, I am the first and the last. And once again, John would would tell us, exactly right. And this is one of those other subtle, clear references to Jesus' divinity. When he says, I am the first and the last, he's saying, I'm Yahweh. I'm the Lord. I'm the I am, the one who is and was and who is coming. So put those in your Bible, and when the Jehovah's Witness come to your door, ask them, can you explain this to me? Isaiah says, God says, I'm the first and the last, and there is no other God. And Jesus says, I'm the first and the last. And that's what your Bible says. And so, can you explain that to me? So Jesus says, I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. He says, I I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Jesus emphasizes that he's alive. He emphasizes that he has been raised from the dead. He says, I'm Jesus. I'm the one that was horrifically, unjustly, but yet according to the Father's plan, crucified. I died, but I did not stay dead. I rose, and I am very much alive today. He says, I have the keys of death and Hades. To have the key is to possess authority over this entity. And Jesus says, I I have authority over death. I have authority over Hades, a reference to the grave. I, I died, but, but I came alive. I conquered death, and I hold those keys. And so, as John writes to his churches, he's reminding these people of Jesus' authority. He's reminding these people who are facing persecution. He's reminding these people who even, as we'll see, some have and will face death. And Jesus says, I have the keys of death and Hades. I died and I'm alive forevermore and all who aligned with me will be the same. So behold your glorified Savior in his death-defeating authority. And and let's use a little logical deduction here. If Jesus has authority over the greatest threat and most fearful thing a part of human life, that's, that's death. 
Nothing is more horrifying. Nothing is more permanent than death. So if he has authority over that, then does he not have authority over the smaller fears and the smaller threats in our lives? Certainly. And so for us, as we live this life, it's, it's a short life compared to eternity. It's fraught with all sorts of uncertainties. And as we age, we get older, you face pains, you face bad diagnoses, you face tragedies in your own life and in your family's life. And as we realize that we're mortal and that death door is coming towards us and that fear of that experience begins to grip us, Jesus reminds us, I have the keys of death and Hades. He was dead. He experienced death. Jesus walked through that door. He felt those pangs. And it overcame him. He died, but it did not grip him forever. He is alive today. He overcame death. And if you are aligned with him, if you are in Christ, you too will not be gripped by death, but you will be forever alive with Jesus. So you don't need to fear death, and by implication, you don't need to fear anything else because Jesus has great authority. In fact, he has all authority. And so you can trust him with your lives, with your possessions, with your everything. Because if we don't have to fear death, we don't have to fear anything else. But if you're here tonight and you, don't, you aren't aligned to Jesus Christ, if you've not repented of your sin and come to Him for saving, you should fear death. Because what awaits you is, is not merely just physical death, but eternal death forever, separated from life with God in eternal punishment. But the good news is Jesus has conquered death. He has conquered the grave. And any who repent and believe, he gives them victory over the grave. And you can be saved tonight if you call on him. So behold the glorified Christ in his death-defeating authority. Finally, behold the glorified Christ in his close presence among his churches. Come back to the beginning of the vision here in verse 12. John turns and he sees seven golden lampstands. And a lampstand, we know in the Old Testament, was in the tabernacle. And it had seven uh, candlesticks on it. There was one lampstand with seven uh, lights on it. This was in the holy place. It was by the bread of presence. It was near the altar of incense, which was at the, the entrance to the, the most holy place. It would have given light to the tabernacle. 
Uh, and it would have been associated with God's presence. It was so close to that most holy place. And here in our vision, we have seven golden lampstands, once again, using that number seven as an idea of completeness. And so these lampstands signify God's presence. And we're told that these lampstands in verse 20, they are the seven churches. So each lampstand represents a a local church. And so uh, this signifies God's presence with his church, but also that the church is a witness, is a light that is burning in this world. Secondly, we're told that Jesus holds these seven stars in his right hand. And Jesus tells us in verse 20 that the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. So what are these seven angels? Some think this is a reference to some real angel. Others think it's a reference to uh, the local church pastor. And others think it's a reference to the, the spirit of the churches. I don't think it's a reference to the spirit of the churches. It's never used that way in the book. I think it's unlikely that it's a reference to local church pastors, given that the New Testament uh, gives to us uh, uh, the idea of plurality, uh, that it would not single out an elder and represent him as a pastor. So I think in some ways this is a reference to some angelic being. And remember, this is apocalyptic literature, and so uh, we're not to sort of create our own theology of guardian angels or something for the churches. But, but in some ways, remember, this is a revelation coming from God to Christ through an angel, an intermediary to John. And so uh, an angelic being is somehow in reference here and I think is a part of the apocalyptic uh, vision here. Remember in our, in our version, uh, in our text we read in Daniel 10, Uh, that Michael is called Israel's prince. So it seems as if Michael had some sort of uh, special reference uh, to those people. And God's angels serve him, and they will serve him in his work in the churches. And so we see these seven lampstands, and this Son of Man is walking in the midst of these lampstands. One commentator note, he, that is Christ, is no absentee who has withdrawn from earth at his ascension. The first characteristic of Christ revealed to John in his vision is that he is present among the earthly congregations of his people. That when, that when John gets a glimpse into heaven, where is Jesus? Jesus is not just, you know, he's accomplished his task and he's playing golf and, and just doing his own pleasure-seeking. No, Jesus is present among his churches. He is, he is observing their actions and he is, he is greatly concerned for their health. This, con- this confirms what Jesus told his church. 
I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus is not leaving his churches. He is observing. He is ruling. He is watching. And and the end of this vision, and this vision of of chapter 1, is a transition point for us as we go to the letters of chapters 2 and 3, where Jesus is going to evaluate these seven churches. But before he evaluates them, he reveals himself to them. And so we'll see that the characteristics of Jesus described in chapter 1 are going to be used in each of the letters to the seven churches. That if you look in chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus tells the church in Ephesus, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. We just saw that. Chapter 2, verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. We just saw that. To the words in Pergamum, the words of him, in verse 12, who has the sharp two-edged sword. We just saw that. Verse 18, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So you see the connection to this vision in chapter 1 and the letters in chapters 2 and 3. That Jesus is walking among the lampstands, he's evaluating his churches, and he has a message for us. of encouragement and admonition. So John writing these letters to the churches is saying that they must understand something of who Jesus is. And each congregation gets this own aspect that's relevant to the message that Jesus is saying, is sending to them. And the point is, you know, as you understand me and you Church X, as you understand this particular aspect of me, you will come to greater faithfulness in your service of me. And so that is the connection. And so that that sort of just sets us up uh, for Jesus' evaluation uh, in chapters 2 to 3. So, so be reminded tonight that this glorified Christ who we've seen displayed for us is present among his churches. There is, as it were, a lampstand for Grace Church Downingtown. And Jesus is watching and he's observing. And he's shepherding us from heaven. And he's greatly concerned about what we do And as we look at him and he looks at us in Acts, he purifies us and he encourages us to faithfulness. Because it's only when we rightly understand Jesus that we can rightly understand ourselves. And it's when we only rightly understand ourselves that we can grow into the mature Christian life that God desires for us. So it's important for, and, and I think this is the point of this vision going into these uh, chapters 2 and 3, that it's in looking at Jesus that we are admonished and equipped to serve in his church. So very quickly, we're, we're, we're embarking on a mission this week with our, our VBS 
And, and lots have, have, have gone into the preparation of that. And there are still more to come, even in a few minutes from now. But what is the most important way you can prepare for this week? It's not fine-tuning your, your lesson, as important as that is. It's not fine-tuning your, your classroom or the decorations or the food or the logistics of it all. The best way you can prepare is to look at Jesus and be transformed so that you can bring some level of that glory to these children that they too can be transformed. So may we see more of this glorified Christ and be transformed. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit that that shows us your glory. That many of us, or most of us in this room, in some way, I am sure, have seen the glory of Christ revealed in your word tonight. And that's a miracle. There are many who would hear this, or maybe even have heard this, that it's not impressive that can easily leave and and go on with their lives. But Lord, help us to take a sober look at you, to pause, to see your glory, and to be transformed. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.